Uh, so really all of the evidence really stacks up to where we can't support the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity. But in every study we've ever done where we've given people a calorie surplus, um, except for very, very rare occasions, they always gain weight. And those rare occasions um, generally have to do with pretty big pharmacological intervention um, or you massively overfeed people with protein, which there's some other issues with that as well that kind of put those outside of that scope of investigation. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and with me today from Washington State is Dr. Brad Dieter. Welcome, Brad. Hi, Nathan. It's uh, great to be here. I'm very honored that you invited me on. So it's nice to connect with somebody on the, I think, about as far away on the other side of the world as we can get. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. I think we um, first connected just before COVID kicked off, and, <laughs> and it's been about <laughs> three months later we're finally connecting. Um, so, Brad, you're a um, specialist in carbohydrate metabolism, and now you're also doing online nutrition. So today I want to talk about all things carbohydrates, diabetes, both, and also carbohydrates in uh, healthy populations. So, um, but first of all, perhaps just give us a bit of a brief background from your academic and now um, clinical uh, perspective. Yeah, so I'll, uh, I'll maybe give you guys the the short version just so we don't take too long on this. Um, so my, my kind of my background specifically towards this is I actually did my my doctoral work in um, diabetes and cardiovascular metabolism. Um, so we looked at essentially how how exercise and diet affect the the kind of uh, structural changes in the heart that arise from diabetes. So we know that the the metabolic things that come from diabetes um, and the metabolic changes that occur in the heart, um, change the the structure and function of the heart. And we also know that kind of the pressure overload that comes from hypertension associated with diabetes also changes the heart. So we looked at how, how do diet and exercise kind of modulate the actual gene regulation of the diabetic heart. Um, so that was my, my doctoral work. And then my PhD work, we primarily focused on um, protein metabolism and inflammation in diabetes in the kidney. So we did everything from very basic cell culture studies, looking at how um, kind of amino acids in the presence of high glucose in key renal cells affect the um, inflammatory response. And then also we did animal models and human trials of, of drug development that we were working on. Um, so that that's kind of the academic background. And then I've been in industry for Oh, uh, 12-ish years now. Um, yeah, it must have been 2010 I started. Um, or no, 2008 I started um, and have done nutrition coaching. I've built a couple nutrition coaching businesses, um, do a lot of the kind of certification development for some of the big institutes here in North America. Um, and that's kind of my, my background. Great. So let's dive into carbohydrate metabolism because it is a, a hot topic, whether it's more from the, the fitness perspective or um, if you look online and social media, there's um, very different opinions and quite heated debates. Um, my sense from from inside sort of the industry I'm in is that carbohydrates is this sort of very binary view of carbohydrate intake and metabolism and and the role insulin plays in things like obesity and the development of um, diabetes. So I'll, I'll, the general sort of theme or meme I feel is that people consume carbohydrates, it raises insulin, insulin causes fat storage. Um, if you do this uh, over a prolonged period, you become obese and also the, the pancreas, quote unquote, sort of wears out and you get this like insulin resistance. Um and obviously, ketogenic diets are really popular and um, can often work really well. But often, practitioners and patients feel it's the only answer. And I, I feel like there's a lot of grey areas here. And um, I suppose people, healthy people, can maybe obsessively be mindful of carbohydrates and think insulin is driving all these sort of um, pathologies. So I just wanted to sort of get the sort of an objective and agnostic view on all this and, and see where um, 
you know, carbohydrate restriction is useful and maybe where it's uh, unnecessary. So uh, there's a sort of a, a pre-frame. Let's first look at um, diabetes and, and what it is, and then we can look yeah. at carbohydrate metabolism. So what is diabetes uh, like from a um, development and a, a pathophysiological level? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the hard parts about this conversation is most of us really approach it from kind of the end result of what the disease state is um, without really understanding kind of the natural history and progression of the disease and then kind of the de facto mm. underlying uh, mechanisms of the disease. So kind of a, a review of the natural history of diabetes really is illuminating in terms of um, how that end results, that end physiological milieu associates with associates with potentially you know, nutrition intervention. So we'll kind of, you know, start at the beginning. Um, so when we talk about the natural history of disease with diabetes is it really um, kind of initiates and starts from a, for most people, and in most cases, it starts from a, a context of energy overload. Um, so when we have excessive energy um, that's in the system, in the body, we start to accumulate um specifically fatty acids in peripheral peripheral organ tissues and in some of the central organs. So skeletal muscle, um, we start to see increases in fatty acid deposition. We start to see increases in fatty acid deposition um, also in, in the pancreas and in the liver. Um, and those kind of three areas really kind of start to fundamentally change our metabolism. So as we accumulate uh, fatty acids, specifically, let's say the muscle tissue first, um, what starts to happen is our skeletal muscles, actual ability to oxidize fatty acids becomes impaired. So we start to oxidize fat less, uptake it at the same rate, deposit it at higher rates in our peripheral tissue. And then that excess fatty acid starts to be turned into other things like um, diacylglycerols and ceramides, and those things fundamentally start causing insulin resistance. Um, and when then when that starts to occur, we start to see, you know, we have the same glucose needs intracellularly. We have the same requirements for maintaining glucose homeostasis and circulation. So we start producing more insulin to handle the body's inability to dispose of glucose in the peripheral tissue. Um, and that kind of increase in the need for insulin really parallels the rising levels of insulin resistance. Um, and so we will see this rise in insulin levels, but a main maintenance of kind of normal homeostatic levels of glucose until we get to the point where either A, we can't produce enough insulin to kind of overcome the insulin resistance and glucose levels will start to rise. And then we'll have a fall in insulin production, and then glucose levels will start to run away pretty quickly. Um, and the reason insulin levels rise generally has less to do with kind of the the meme or the trope of you know our islet producing or our insulin producing islet cells kind of you know getting exhausted, but more of actual pancreatic damage where we have apoptosis of these cells due to inflammation fibrosis and excessive fatty acid deposition in the pancreas itself. So that's kind of the, the natural history of the disease. And then resultant to that is we start to see elevated blood glucose levels because these regulatory mechanisms of disposal and actual production in the liver start to become highly dysregulated. Right. So just back to that idea that the energy surplus, and this is, I think, the the crux, I believe, is this sort of the like some term of the push versus the pull theory, where um, the push theory is you just got so much energy, whether it's from whatever macronutrient in your system, and it's sort of pushing it into your cells, versus the the pull theory that you've got too much um, insulin, which is pulling the the um, carbohydrates into the cell. So just to circle back to that, it's an overall energy surplus that's driving um, this accumulation of uh, the lipids, et cetera, in the peripheral organs and tissues? Yes. Yep. For I would say for most cases of diabetes that are type 2, um, that's that's exactly how it occurs. Okay, great. And um, 
insulin itself, um, maybe it's sort of semantics, it's often viewed as this problematic hormone. It's obviously important for um, glucose homeostasis. Um, so maybe from your research as well, is it is it the excessive glucose in the circulation or is it the excessive energy in the, the cells or is it insulin as a, like a, a signaling hormone in excess that's driving pathology? Um, so it kind of depends on where we're talking about pathology. Um, if we talk about like end organ damage, um, that's primarily resultant of a combination of excessive glucose coupled with excessive, um, amino acids coupled with, uh, kind of hypertension, hypertension, hypertension and increased, um, kind of arterial pressure. So when we talk about end organ damage, like kidneys, hearts, um, your microvasculature, um, neuropathies, things like that. Those are primarily resultant of the, the change in the metabolic and hemodynamic milieu. Um, if we're talking about kind of the, the insulin resistance pathology that occurs in peripheral tissue and your liver, um, that's primarily a result of energy overload that causes inflammation and oxidative stress. And then just some other kind of generally aberrant signaling things that occur inside the cells. Right. So back to the um, energy surplus, the, there's this concept and might help explain why some people can be overweight yet metabolically healthy and often um, people cite as extreme like the sumo wrestlers who are, you know, by body weight morbidly obese but typically don't have their insulin resistance. There's this concept of um, personal fat mass. So is how how much validity is there to this about like different people will um, hit like a, a threshold and that's when they become insulin resistant? Yeah, I would say that threshold, I wouldn't say is like binary where there's just like a, a point where you yeah. hit a certain amount. Um, I would say, so it's not binary. It's definitely appears to be on kind of a sliding scale, but I think that that scale is def- different for every person. Um, and I think that depends on their level of physical activity, their genetics, um, you know, some of their, you know, maybe environmental exposure history, because we do know there are some things that can change that. Um, Culture, a lot of different things can affect that kind of individualized fat mass, you know, uh, scale. Yeah. Is um, often visceral adipocities used as a marker for um, risk of diabetes? Is it the actual visceral adiposity or is that more of a proxy for there's fat mass accumulating in other organs like the, the liver, et cetera? Yeah. So from my read of the literature, um, I think it's a combination of both. So okay. one, um, kind of to address the latter point, visceral adipose tissue levels are a good surrogate marker of kind of overall ectopic fat uh, deposition, right? So whether it's skeletal muscle, liver, pancreas, any of those things, um, the higher your visceral adipose tissue, the greater your ectopic fat deposition and kind of pathological mechanisms that occur in those tissues. Um, the other piece is as your visceral adipose tissue specifically starts to increase in mass, you start to have um, a shift in your kind of inflammatory response in your body, um, in yeah. your your immune profile, and also some of the hormones that regulate metabolism start to change as well as visceral adipose tissue specifically starts to increase. Great. And um, so just on to now to biomarkers, yeah. what are some of the, the better ones? So you work with clients as well. Um, so you can go into great detail, perhaps like with the whole battery of tests. So what are some of the, I suppose, entry-level things for maybe a healthy person, but also a person who may be overweight and at risk of diabetes? Um, what are some of the better ones, any that maybe are somewhat overrated and should maybe not put as much weight to? Yeah, so the things that I really like to use with people are fasting insulin levels, um, A1Cs, and uh, fasting blood glucose. And the reason I use all three of those is generally if you get a blood draw, you can get all of them out of you know one test. Yeah. Um, and they all have very different interpretations. So your fasting insulin level sort of gives you an idea of 
what is your kind of current state of insulin resistance? So if you think about, you've got normal fasting insulin levels and those can creep up while you maintain regular fasting blood glucose because that's kind of the compensatory mechanism. Um, that's kind of the the push mechanism for your body, right? Yeah. Um, and so if you have somebody with normal fasting glucose but has elevated insulin, we know there's some things going on we need to address. Um, A1Cs are a good marker to kind of reflect total glucose exposure over a 90-day period. Um, that's roughly what they're used for, right? So we can kind of say, okay, what's been your total glucose exposure and how um, how high is kind of your average blood sugar level over the last 90 days? And then fasting blood glucose can be a tool um, to kind of understand, you know, in a snapshot, what is your, you know, kind of current level of glucose of what's going on currently. Now, the problem with fasting glucose is it can be pretty varied um, for a lot of different reasons, right? If you aren't truly fasted, if you're incredibly stressed out, if you have, you know, like right now, um, it's allergy season here. So I have to probably next week, I have to go get like a, a corticosteroid shot for my allergies. That'll elevate my fasting blood glucose for a few days. Um, you know, those sorts of things can really vary your fasting blood glucose. So I don't like to have just that. It's kind of the yeah. combination of those three. So um, you mentioned earlier about the the pathology, say in the pancreas and apoptosis, which sounds quite dire. Um, I presume, obviously, people lose weight and their blood glucose goes down. This is reversible. and um, But also there's this bit of a debate in the literature, et cetera, and online about the idea of management versus remission. So does a re- reduction in fasting blood glucose, hemoglobin A1C and insulin mean that people can better tolerate carbohydrates or is it just now that they're it's not like a Band-Aid, but they're, they're managing things better and um, they're still potentially at risk of, say, if they started consuming carbohydrates, which we'll get to, that could elevate again. Yeah, so there's... <sighs> They're kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, so you can have a reduction in symptomology for sure. Um, so you can have lower fasting glucose, um, lower insulins, lower A1Cs. You can have improved carbohydrate metabolism. Um, and you can also have remission, which is um, you know really kind of the fundamental causes. So you can actually have reductions in ectopic fat. Um, insulin resistance and those things. And you can have kind of disease remission where you have kind of reverted your body more to a normal state. Now, one of the projects I worked on kind of towards the end of my um, academic career was looking at this idea of once you've been exposed to kind of a diabetic milieu, have there been changes that have occurred that are non-reversible? Um, And so that could be everything from, you know, like epigenetic changes um, to just changes in, you know, structural changes to things like your liver and your pancreas. Like, have we had irreversible fibrotic processes? Um, Have we had changes in adipocytes that are pretty fundamental? So there do appear to be some of these lasting changes that if you've had diabetes for a somewhat extended period of time, we don't really know what that time frame is there's going to be lingering features that make it easier for your body to kind of revert to this diabetic state. Right. That makes, yeah, a lot of sense. I never thought about the epigenetics. It can be, yeah, long lasting. Um, Maybe it could even be um, transgenerational, which I think there has been some, some research with that's more the other way, isn't it? With like um, Dutch hunger winters, et cetera, um, over generations, but that's sort of hard to tease out. I'm sure. So um, let's move on then. Let's look at, say, weight loss as a, a cornerstone for management and um, improvement of um, uh, hyperglycemia and insulin resistance. So the the, the diet wars, um, this is a, a hot topic, um, but I think there's a, a lot of good data now, and I want to explore that from, a, as I said, an objective perspective. Um, so... This idea that it's the insulin model of um, the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity versus the overall caloric content of a diet that is the key determinant of weight gain and or weight loss. So there's been um, 
metabolic ward studies, there's been free living studies um, and everything in between. So could you perhaps take us through sort of the, the landscape of some of the, the um, studies that have uh, taken place and what's, what the outcomes have been? Yeah, so these are really great questions. Um, so I guess the best place to start is let's kind of take the two opposing ideas. We, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, kind of this idea of what drives obesity and then potentially what drives diabetes has kind of been boiled down to two very simple ideas. We'll call them simple. Mm. Uh, calories in versus calories out. So an energy surplus is what drives obesity. Um, and then as a result, diabetes. And then on the other side is kind of the hormone hypothesis where you have dietary associated changes in hormones are what drive obesity. Um, and really what that means is as you increase carbohydrate content of the diet, you have increased insulin secretion. Insulin drives more calories into adipose tissue, therefore driving obesity. Um, and so, you know, not to get too far into the weeds on stuff, but both of those hypotheses have very distinct, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not projections. Um, why am I blinking on this word? It's a very simple word. Um, <laughs> it's come to you. They have very simple, like expected outcomes, right? Like, oh, predictions. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. Uh, predictions. So what would the predictions be of a carbohydrate insulin model of obesity? And the way science generally works is we put forth the hypothesis and we test it. And if we have evidence to indicate that hypothesis is incorrect, we reject that hypothesis. So if I was designing a few studies, here might be how I would design, okay, what, which of these is more accurate? Um, so one study I might do is I might take people um, and I might kind of you know, feed them uh, kind of calorie balanced diets, one that is very low on the insulinogenic side and one another one that is very high on the insulinogenic side and see which one causes more weight gain if they're calorie controlled. And in theory, the kind of high carbohydrate, high protein, high insulinogenic diet should cause you to gain more weight. Um, turns out when you run that study, whether you do it once or twice or five times, um, there's no real difference in weight gain. So that's the first kind of piece of evidence to suggest, okay, the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity probably isn't correct. Um, another one is if I take a group of people and I measure their kind of baseline insulin levels and then I track them over time, people who have higher fasting insulin levels should gain more weight over time. Turns out that also does not happen. So baseline levels of insulin have virtually no predictive capacity for projecting future weight gain. Um, there are some other studies where you can actually take people and then you can overfeed them, either high fat diets, a kind of low, let's just say lower insulinogenic, higher fat content diets or higher insulinogenic, higher carbohydrate diets and see who gains more weight. Um, turns out the actually the opposite of the carbohydrate and insulin hypothesis occurs. So people who have a higher proportion of their calories from carbohydrates on a calorie surplus diet actually gain less fat mass than people on a higher fat diet. That fundamentally boils down to the biochemistry of the human body and how we store different nutrients and the efficiencies of those storages. Um, then there's evidence really on the other side of the coin too of if we underfeed people, lower insulin producing diets should result in more weight loss than kind of higher insulin producing diets. That also doesn't appear to be true. So lower fat, higher carbohydrate diets are almost identical to kind of higher carbohydrate or lower carbohydrate, higher fat diets, except for there may be a slight benefit to the low fat, higher carbohydrate diet. Um, so really all of the evidence really stacks up to where we can't support the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity. But in every study we've ever done where we've given people a calorie surplus, um, except for very, very rare occasions, they always gain weight. And those rare occasions um, generally have to do with pretty big pharmacological intervention um, or you massively overfeed people with protein which there's some other issues with that as well that kind of 
put those outside of that scope of investigation. All right. So yeah, it sounds like whatever way you you test the hypothesis, it doesn't seem to be getting a signal. Um, and they're quite elegant studies. It's, so some of the um, counter arguments from obviously the low carbohydrate community, um, who obviously are trying to defend these null findings, then would um, have argued about like, well, that's in a laboratory in controlled settings. Um, but when people are in free living and they can um, choose their diet and uh, potentially the ketogenic diet um, controls appetite better, then you'd get a, a signal. So there's, can you also talk about some of the like free living studies that have gone for six, 12 months, such as like the, the diet fits and, and what were the results there? Yeah. So there's, this area of literature has a little bit more nuance to it. Um, and some interpretations that I think you know, depending on what side of the fence you fall, you'll make different interpretations. But so the diet fit study was interesting and that it was a pretty free living study. They took people and they randomized them to low carb or low fat diets. And then they stratify them at baseline based on kind of their genetic profile. So whether they should genetically favor carbohydrates or favor protein or favor fats. Um, and then also stratified them based on their insulin status. So how much baseline insulin which is a marker of their insulin resistance. What they found is that in the state of a calorie deficit, weight loss is identical across diets, so low carb or low fat, stratified whether they kind of matched their genetics or mismatched their genetics, and irrespective of their insulin status at baseline. So kind of no matter how you, you know, slice or dice your genetics versus your kind of baseline metabolic state, matching a diet to either one doesn't really appear to be any more beneficial than just being in a calorie deficit. So the calorie deficit drives most, if not all of the actual benefit of the weight loss approach. Yeah. Okay. So what about like specific carbohydrates? Um, people will talk about and you know, <clears throat> pardon me, refined carbohydrates or it's the sugar or it's the, the fructose molecule and they'll cite elegant sort of mechanistic pathways. Um, now, not not at any point suggesting we should consume, you know, loads of sugar and refined carbohydrates, but I'm also mindful that when looking at the research, when there is a significant amount of sugar and refined carbohydrates in the diets, if it's still within an isocaloric or a hypocaloric um, diet, to me, it doesn't seem like there's a huge signal again about like um, certainly weight gain, but even metabolic dysfunction. Um, can you clarify, add, or re rebut that? Yeah. So I think there's there's kind of two pieces to this conversation kind of around refined carbohydrates, fructose, table sugar, um, high fructose corn syrup. Um, and I think we'll start with kind of the, the bigger picture piece too is um, – we know that adding additional sugar to the diet, um, in addition to kind of natural sugars that occur in food, do two things. One, they increase the palatability of food, generally speaking, to an extent. Um, and two, they are a source of additional calories that would probably not have been consumed otherwise. Um, yeah. And so when we look at, we know that caloric intake has increased since the 1970s in our diet. Um, and I think it's somewhere in the tune of, 400-ish calories a day, plus or minus 100, depending on which survey data you look at. Almost all of that caloric increase has come from added fats and added sugars. And so refined sugars and added sugars are one key component to our current overconsumption of calories across kind of societal um, borders. So that's the first piece. So just kind of recognizing these are a problem in the diets, kind of generally speaking, because they're additional calories and they can drive, some of their inherent properties can drive overconsumption of food. Um, now, these, these added sugars, the fructose per se, themselves do not appear to have any major substantial metabolic problems when consumed in normal quantities. Um, so like we can take fructose, for example, that's probably been one of the most, um, kind of polarizing topics and discussions over the last, I would say probably 25 years. I think mm. research really kind of started heavily on that probably the mid 1990s. 
Um, so we're looking at probably 25, 30 years of research. And those studies have been interesting. Um, and where we really have to look for the best data here is in the human studies. We can't really use animal models for fructose metabolism because it's so different than humans. Um, and their de novo lipogenesis, is, especially rodent models, is much different than humans. So we really have to look to the human data. Um, and fortunately, we have you know, really three or four good types of research surrounding fructose. Um, the first is we have isotopic tracer studies where we've taken uh, fructose, we've isotopically labeled it, we fed it to people in various dosages, and we've actually tracked where it's gone in the body. Um, and I don't have all the numbers right off the top of my head, but what we know is when you consume fructose kind of in the neighborhood of 50-ish grams, um, almost all of it... 99% of it is either directly oxidized, um, converted to glucose and then oxidized, converted to lactate, exported to the bloodstream and metabolized, um, or converted to glucose and stored as some form of glycogen. And about 1% of it, um, less than 1%, depending on the data you look at, it's way less than 1%, is converted to any sort of fatty acids. So we kind of hear this discussion around Hey, whenever you consume fructose, your body can't metabolize it, so it goes to the liver and gets used and gets turned into fat. That's you know, if you're looking at you know 50 grams of fructose consumption from like a big Mountain Dew or something, um, you're looking at less than a half a gram gets converted into fat in your liver um, in an acute setting. So those studies have kind of shown us exactly how it's metabolized. Then we have. Um, actually randomized trials where we've taken people and we've fed them, you know, moderate amounts of fructose, you know, 50 to 60 grams, pretty high doses of fructose, 120 to 150 grams, and then absurdly high doses of fructose of 250, 300 grams a day, and have looked at outcomes. Um, so we've looked at glucose levels, we've looked at insulin levels, we've looked at, um, you know, insulin resistance, we have looked at, uh, ectopic liver fat accumulation. And really what we see is anything under about 150 grams a day of these don't really cause any major issues. And to put that in context, um, if we look at NHANES survey data, which does have some problems um, that it's not super accurate, but it's probably within a rough order of magnitude, correct? The, the least healthy diets have in the, the U.S. are amongst teenagers, right? They consume the highest amount of, of um, kind of added sugars to their diet. And those people consume about 70 to 80 grams of fructose a day. Right. Um, so that's about half of what these studies show. Sure. And, and meta-analyses and meta-regressions have really shown that these kind of high fructose corn syrup or fructose consumption, less than about 100 grams a day, we don't see any major metabolic abnormalities. Um, and, and those papers have accumulated multiple studies. Thank you. That's very comprehensive. And yeah, it reiterates like, I, I, yeah, I feel that sometimes sugar, not to sort of, um, you know, quit it, but it's, I think oh, too much blame is put on that. And it's probably more the overall caloric intake. It's not just the, the soda or as we say, soft drink over here that you got. It's the burger and fries and everything that gives you the 1200 calories per meal. Um, so what I want to go back to is, is there like misconceptions? I get the sense like people sort of almost roll their eyes at this calories in calories out model. And I get that. Um, so I think it's, it's far more complex than just, um, you know, and, and it might work well for some of your clients who are that way sort of motivated, but like thinking of it as a budget and tracking, you know, your calories and then doing 30 minutes of cardiovascular exercise, et cetera, because, they are coupled together, is my understanding, because of the um, adaptations that occur during weight loss and caloric restriction that drive up hunger. So, I don't know. Um, my question is: Is there some misconceptions from, like the, I suppose, a low carb community, like oh, calories in, calories out, that doesn't, it doesn't really work, or um, it's oversimplistic? Have we sort of, or has it been sort of framed in the wrong light? Yeah, so I, I kind of think about it like one of the best analogies I have for people is think about it kind of as is money or finances, right? You can look at, I mean, balancing a budget. Really, you can tell somebody, hey, it's as simple as 
like all you got to do is, you know, make sure that you're not spending more than you're earning. Right. And that's like, that's a very simple concept, but you also have to think about like, okay, what in your life controls money expenses, right? There's a lot of things that we have very good control over like, Hey, I know what my fixed cost of my mortgage is and my cell phone bill. But then there's also, you know, of, Oh, grocery prices are changing or I had some emergency that came up and I had to replace a, uh, like a washing machine that I wasn't expecting or, you know, somebody got sick and now I have a big hospital bill. So there's all these unaccounted for things, right? So balancing a budget, you have all these kind of unexpected life things that occur that kind of throw that out the window. The same kind of concept applies to the calories in calories out model, right? When we account for every calorie in and every calorie out, it almost perfectly explains changes in body weight. Um, the hard part is how do we accurately track all of the food that comes in? And then the even harder question is how do we track our energy expenditure? Even the best fitness trackers in the world are not great. Um, so all weight loss and weight gain falls within the calories in calories out paradigm. But we have to figure out ways to operationalize those concepts to change the calories in equation, whether it's you know counting calories and counting macronutrients, um, whether it's meal plans, whether it's adopting a dietary approach that just restricts energy intake, whether it's changing habits that severely restrict energy intake, whether it's changing your physical activity so much that you drive caloric expenditure well beyond your ability to increase food. When you view the calories in, calories out as the kind of governing explanation of weight change, but then you realize there's a bunch of ways you can operationalize how you apply that to your life, it becomes a much easier tool to explain to people. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Great. All right, so let's move on um, to actually managing patients, um, what sort of modalities or therapies we can apply. Um, It's obviously weight loss, um, bariatric surgery for those people who are morbidly obese seems to improve um, uh, glucose metabolism. So first of all, what what's for those who are overweight, what sort of weight loss um, is necessary or ballpark figure to see improvements in uh, carbohydrate metabolism? Um, yeah, so when we see about a 10% weight loss, um, that's where we can see pretty remarkable benefit just from weight loss. So kind of 10% of starting body weight. So if it's, you know, you've got somebody who's 250 pounds, just losing 25 pounds makes a huge difference. Yeah. So they still can be um, quote unquote overweight, but it's the the delta or the, the, the change that seems to mediate or allow the benefits. Yeah. It's kind of that, that, change in fat mass and the reduction of it that starts to really move things in the right direction from a kind of a metabolic perspective. Yeah. So there's been a couple studies. I'm curious on your take-homes on this. Um, I I find it fascinating from like a physiological perspective, but also puzzled from a a sustainability. There's, I think, the direct study, a couple studies and maybe the calorie study where they um, put diabetic patients or pre-diabetic patients on like um, I think liquid only sort of meal replacement diets. Yeah. It might have been like 800 calories a day. They dropped a bunch of weight, um, and I believe there was signs of like um, the remission about the beta cell function restoration. Um, so I'm not terribly clear, but maybe you can add to it. Is that correct? And um, I don't know. Maybe from hopefully a metabolically healthy person, how the heck do you stay on only 800 calories a day? Yeah, you know, so one of the things we have learned from the literature is very low calorie, like big energy deficit approaches have pretty remarkable results for kind of early success and metabolic changes that are beneficial. So if you lose, you know, 30 pounds in 10 weeks or something, um, those have pretty remarkable effects on your kind of metabolic status. um, And it's all very beneficial. Now, Part of the problem with those approaches is generally they don't come with additional lifestyle education, sustainability plans, et cetera. So the reason that they end up not having good long-term outcomes is not because they lost weight quickly. Um, it's more because they 
uh, regain the weight eventually because they didn't really put pieces in place for maintaining these losses. So as long as you can couple the kind of rapid weight loss with long-term maintenance, right. um, then you can have pretty pretty, imp- pretty impressive long-term outcomes from those things. Okay. So onto the, the ketogenic or low-carbohydrate diets, because I, I do want to iterate that they you can, and people often do, lose remarkable amounts of weight on the ketogenic diets, um, but just to reinforce, they don't seem to be superior to other forms of caloric restriction. But moving into, say, a patient with prediabetes or diabetes, um, it's it doesn't seem like there's a consensus yet, say, from like the you know conventional diabetic boards about the use of a ketogenic diet but i'm curious on where we are in the research now about uh, low carbohydrate diets for the management of diabetes and pre-diabetes yeah i mean so as long as you can utilize them to drive weight loss and sustain weight loss they can be very effective tools um some people do much better on low carb ketogenic diets for kind of long periods of time for weight loss um, and weight maintenance. And as long as they are adherent and, you know, you don't have any other issues that arise from them, they can be very good tools. Um, I wouldn't say that they are, you know, curing the disease per se. um, And I wouldn't give, you know, the fact that you've kind of removed carbohydrates as like the the mechanism by which they work. It's really kind of an energy deficit. Um, now there are some, some things to consider about the long-term efficacy of ketogenic diets for overall risk reduction. And you kind of have to play two, two risk games when we do this. The first is we know weight reduction improves almost all of your cardiovascular markers for risk. So, um, blood pressure, cholesterol, triglycerides, insulin, fasting glucose, uh, inflammatory markers, they all decrease with weight loss irrespective of what diet you do. Now we do see, especially people who have kind of metabolic issues like type 2 diabetes, if you have high fat diets, you can see some increases in LDL um, and total cholesterol. And that mm. may then kind of artificially increase or even you know, actually increase your overall risk for cardiovascular disease. So it's kind of this game of if we use it to initially lose a bunch of weight and we see massive benefits to cardiovascular markers, but then over time, this kind of very high fat diet approach starts to cause some of these cholesterol numbers to creep up. We may need to then change our diet to kind of, now that we have a new set of problems or kind of risk initiators how do we then address those risk initiators yeah it makes sense yeah sometimes it seems like some of the low carbohydrate advocates do some sort of mental gymnastics to suggest maybe the ldl doesn't matter and cholesterol is not an issue but i think yeah, it's likely... and, go ahead yeah and I think, you know some of those discussions and, and I've, i think i've had those with with quite a few people is i always i kind of compartmentalize that that discussion in two different ways one is now, what are the fundamental underlying mechanisms of cardiovascular disease and precisely how much does LDL number affect that, um, I think is one discussion. And there's arguments to be made, I think, that maybe we've overplayed some of the LDL discussion on the process of um, you know, atherosclerosis. And I think there's some really interesting discussions to be had there. Mm. On the other side of the coin is we have very strong data on risk just using that number as a risk marker. So regardless of whether it's involved to the extent to which it's involved in atherosclerosis, we can use it as a marker for risk management. Um, and so managing that risk by managing that biomarker is something we should consider and have discussions with about our patients. So even if, or our clients, or um, you know, if you're a practitioner working in any of the education side of like, have those discussions, say, Hey, you know, whether it's really LDL cholesterol number or, or particle size or particle number, what number really drives the actual atherosclerotic process. There, there's some discussions we had, but let's not miss the fact that we have 60 years of data showing the LDLC number as controversial as you can make it out to be does have prognostic capacity 
we're predicting cardiovascular disease, cardiovascular events, and cardiovascular mortality. So we need to manage that risk appropriately. All right. Is there anything that we can do to tweak the like have a hydrate diet to reduce or mitigate some of that, like changing the type of fatty acids or having more fiber, any hacks, if you want to call it that, that can still allow people to maintain if they prefer ketogenic diets and, and maybe not see the, the elevations there? Yeah, and this is one of those areas where there does appear to be a pretty big individual response kind of how your cholesterol numbers respond to um, you know, specific dietary nutrients. But kind of general advice is, you know, kind of reducing the amount of refined carbohydrates generally tends to be beneficial for kind of cholesterol numbers, although that's not a huge amount. Um, increasing fiber intake appears to be beneficial. Um, you know, reducing saturated fats and elevating monounsaturated fats and some of the kind of omega-3 polyunsaturated fats also appear to be beneficial for managing cholesterol levels and HDL and LDL ratios and such. So that those are generally kind of the, the blanket statements is energy balance, um, you know, having more kind of having less refined carbohydrates and kind of optimizing the saturated fat to mono and omega three polyunsaturated fatty acids. Sure. So, um, as a segue, you mentioned there's a, a large variation between people. So I might use yeah. that now to, to move on to this new, exciting and maybe confusing area of personalized nutrition that could be maybe a, a bit of a game changer in perhaps managing pre-diabetes and diabetes, um so partly people weight loss you know as simple as it is like with the caloric creating a, a caloric deficit can be quite difficult so there some argue that we maybe need some strategies outside of um changes in weight to to help manage metabolic issues and there's been um recent research looking at the or challenging i suppose first of all the the glycemic index which was i think created in about 992 two of about 10 people and making widespread assumptions um, more recently there's been a, a bit of literature on huge variability in the glycemic index and then we'll, we'll talk about wrapping that up into therapy so um yeah what's can you give us a bit of a, a lay of the land of where the glycemic is and um, was and yeah some of the maybe the myths that have been shattered recently yeah so the glycemic index was a tool that was used to kind of try to try to figure out how do people respond to different carbohydrates and how can we use that to predict kind of glucose spikes or excursions postprandial. Um, generally, we use that a little bit for, you know, working with diabetics and managing insulin loads. We've used it for some in athletes for predicting like, hey, how readily available are glucose sources um, for kind of quick energy availability. Um, and it really was used um, for those things initially. And then it kind of got morphed into, hey, the glycemic index is a relation is relatable to the health aspects of food and all sorts of stuff. Um, but like you mentioned, you know, that was really kind of an overgeneralization of very small sample sizes of people um, and, and foods. And then we kind of extrapolated from there. But what we've learned recently is each person has pretty varied responses to the same food. Um, there was a paper published Oh gosh, this must have been 2015 or 2016, um, where they actually took a bunch of people, put glu continuous glucose monitors on them, and fed them a bunch of different foods and looked at how they responded. And they found there was just huge variations. So some people may actually see big glucose excursions to white bread, while somebody else sees no glucose excursion. Um, take those same people and give them ice cream. The other person has huge responses to that. One person doesn't. So we realize there's a pretty big inter-individual variation of res glucose responses to food. Um, and that work in that lab, they've really keyed in on how does, why are there these big variations? And what we appear to be seeing is that it's primarily driven through changes and alterations in the microbiome. So our kind of unique genetic fingerprint of our microbiome and our metabolome is driven by that. It's fascinating. And um, so that, that group um, spearheaded by Aran Segal 
recently, or they haven't published yet, but there's a few abstracts and hints online at the, the um, results, and I saw him present in October last year, on applying this algorithm to diabetics. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to, to look at some of the results. So just curious on your thoughts, and does this sort of throw a spare in the works from the, um, you know, whether it's caloric intake or ketogenic diet? It seems like it's really revealed many shades of grey. So um, have you seen the results? Can you just talk about them and, and what you think the implications are moving forward? Yeah, I actually, I heard him present, it was probably four years ago um, at a conference. Um, his work's pretty interesting. So I think the way I'm currently interpreting the literature is these kind of personalized approaches to carbohydrates and diets um, based on your microbiome. Um, I don't know if there's a big benefit for weight loss per se, but mm. it does appear that when we talk about trying to manage glucose variability in people because um, that's one of the things that we see that drives an increased risk for kind of long-term micro and macrovascular complications among people with diabetes either type 1 or type 2 is these kind of high glucose variability is one of the bigger risk factors and these diets that can minimize these glucose excursions based on kind of personalized nutrition from your microbiome that may be a fairly beneficial approach to like having a patient having them, you know, do a microbiome study, running it through this algorithm that they've developed and saying, hey, these are the foods that you have big excursions to. Here's the foods you don't. Let's stick with these carbohydrates. Um, that, to me, does appear to be a good way to kind of help manage long-term risk for people with diabetes. Okay, great. So that, yeah, leads me on to my last part about people um, who are seemingly metabolically healthy. Oh, and just to give a shout out to that that study that sh um that around to go I'll hopefully be published soon there's a couple of youtube presentations online um but essentially they compared this personalized diet to a mediterranean diet for pre-diabetes over i think a six month period and they saw yeah i think um equal amounts of weight loss but the area under the curve for glucose the improvements of hemoglobin a1c um i think a few metabolic markers were superior in the the um, personalized diet group so that's really fascinating. I'm curious to see more come out on this. But I want to use that as a segue to talk about, um, I suppose, the the um, clinical utility or the everyday utility in, in healthy people. Um, and yeah, I'm curious on your views here. I have seen it maybe more in the US that people are now using these constant glucose monitors who um, are lean and fit and active and probably more health conscious and um, you mentioned the excursions in blood glucose. I'm just curious, you know, there's a people, some people suggest that testing is great, but there's also a, a downside, I think, where you can become maybe a little bit obsessive or worried, you know, that, that concept of worried well. Um, is it okay to have an excursion here and there? How tight does a, a um, healthy person need to have their blood glucose? And also, is it really necessary that people... Um, monitor the glucose like this? So those are all very excellent questions with no great answers. <laughs> um, we just, you know, we just don't have data. Like we have not done continuous glucose monitoring on healthy people over 30 years and looked at long-term outcomes. So there's just, mm. there's really just no data to really provide good answers to those questions. But I have kind of my own personal biases and speculations that I can make. Um, and I'll just kind of plant the flag that everything I'm about to say is my own bias and my own yep. speculation. So take it for what it's worth. Um, there's kind of a few, a few pieces to this and this is kind of how I think about the problem. And I also don't have any great answers. Um, I think continuous glucose monitors or CGMs is what we'll call them. I think they can be very useful for um, very high performing athletes who really being able to kind of, have tight control over glucose excursions for athletic performance could be potentially very beneficial. Um, there's kind of reasons I think that athletes develop these like pregame meals and things that become a habit is they kind of learn what their body functions really well on um, for which type of events. And I think at least maybe part of that has these is related to some underlying physiological processes that these CGMs could help identify um, much more quickly with much less trial and error. On the other side of it, 
I think the average person who just has kind of long-term health outcomes, I don't think these are going to be super beneficial. Um, one is, I don't know of any compelling data to suggest that within normal glucose vari- within normal ranges, people who are otherwise healthy who have higher glucose variability does not appear to track to long-term mortality rates. Um, so, I mean, all, most of us, all we really care about is that we live a long life and that we live mm. most of that life fairly healthy, right? And so if they don't have any real meaningful utility for overall causes of death, I, I don't know how valuable they are for the average person. Um, I'm also curious to know, I mean, we've evolved over billions of years. Um, our body's ability to have glucose spikes that are used you know, those glucose spikes do come with physiological processes. Um, If we remove those, what are the long-term outcomes of that, right? If we kind of really override this evolutionary mechanism, is that beneficial or is that harmful for long-term outcomes? Have we reduced the kind of, you know, resiliency of our body to handle highs and lows, right? It's like if you're exposed to really cold temperatures really often and really hot temperatures really often, your body has a much more elastic ranges to work in when it's stressed. Um, so if we don't test those limits very often, what are we doing to the resiliency of our overall body? And then the other piece is just psychologically. Like I don't, I'm a pretty analytical quantitative want to know all the data I can person, but the last thing I want to do is be wearing a CGM all the time and worrying about whether the piece of food I had put this above some threshold. Um, Mm. I just, I can't imagine that's for long-term that's super psychologically healthy. Well said. Yeah. I'd never thought about the, um, sort of the hormetic stress, if you want to call it the the elasticity or as they call the metabolic flexibility component of keeping it too, um, tight, I suppose, almost analogous to the, the heart rate variability. You want some sort of, um, flexibility and dynamic response rather than flatlining perhaps curious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I agree with this sort of psychological component. Um, more data, sometimes things isn't necessarily better because it can play in your mind, perhaps. Um, but some people do it and find it interesting. And I, I do find what I do find fascinating is it seems to be the the non nutritive things that maybe affect blood glucose much more um, profoundly, like stress or certainly sleep um, restriction or deprivation. I don't know if you've sort of seen any people anyone's data or heard any comments there but um maybe it's a bit binary just thinking about carbohydrates yeah and that's to me that's the more interesting side of things um is like how is my body responding to things that i don't really realize like i had somebody i was who's who's doing this actually who's tracking it posted that they're they had big glucose spikes during their commute in the car every day and i'm like I guess, I mean, if you don't think about the stress of just jumping in a 70 pound or a 70 mile an hour moving 4,000 pound piece of metal, I mean, that is, that is kind of a dangerous situation, but it'd be interesting to see, you know, how that goes and what things you can learn. Mm. All right. So to wrap up, I'm curious, so what, with all your knowledge and understanding and nuance, how do you incorporate this into your consultations? What's, what's a sort of you know, a client look like and what's your role? Um, yeah. So unfortunately I'm at the point in my life where I don't do a ton of kind of in-person contact anymore. Um, but you know, whenever I do work with clients, I'm a, I'm a big believer of like move the big rocks first. Um, so, you know, if we have somebody, especially in the, the diabetes realm is what are the pieces we need to put in place to kind of manage energy balance first? And then how do we change long-term energy balance? Um, you know, what are the, what are the dietary choices? What are the habit choices? What are the physical activity choices? What are the, the logistics and infrastructure and environment we need to put in, um, in place to ensure that we have a long-term energy deficit for weight loss. Uh, then, you know, the other things that I think about are overall risk management. So if we can take care of body weight, we have substantial risk reduction. And then from there, what are the other things we can do to reduce kind of morbidity and mortality risks. So how do we lower markers of, you know, how do we lower cardiovascular markers in and above weight loss? Um, how do we manage stress levels? Uh, what medications do we need to consider with their physician? Um, 
you know, all those pieces then start to come into play. And so I'm, I'm, I very much kind of try to step through the, the, the really like controllable pieces and then the risk management pieces. And then kind of the, then you get to like, how do we thrive and kind of do all the things you want to do? I love that model. It's brilliant taking all things from the micro to the macro into perspective. So that sounds excellent. Brad, I really appreciate your time and your, your knowledge and your understanding of the, the literature and also putting it into context and practical applications. So thanks again for your time. Anywhere we can find you, follow you, track you. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on. It was it was great. Uh, we got to answer some really cool questions that I don't think I've ever gotten to answer on a podcast before. So okay. This was, uh, this was a ton of fun and I really appreciate the invite. So hopefully at some point we'll be able to, to connect again. Um, best place to find me. So we do all of our nutrition coaching at uh, macrosinc.net. Um, so we do primarily direct-to-consumer coaching currently. Um, we're in the process of building out some actual um, like uh, health coaching that's more tied into healthcare and industry. Um, so we'll be developing that here in the next six to 12 months. Um, so we'll actually be working with directly with practitioners, kind of a lot of the stuff that we talked about on the show to actually, um, work with clients. Um, so that's the best place. So just macrosinc.net. Um, and then you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, um, my email, which is just brad.deter at macrosinc.net. If you guys have any uh, kind of questions related to the show or anything like that, that would be awesome. You can just shoot me an email and I'll try to get back to you guys as soon as I can. Oh, thank you. That's very generous. We'll put all those links in the show notes. All right. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate your time. And yeah, uh, hopefully we can maybe catch up in the future when there's a bit more data to discuss. Yeah, that'd be perfect. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.